very good morning to you. It is Sunday, the 7th of March, 2021. I'm Howard Feldman. This is the Synthesis Sunday podcast with me, Howard Feldman and Dr. Anton Marburg. Each Sunday, for the last 49 Sundays, we've been bringing uh, the information to you each week. Next week is our anniversary. So uh, we're expecting lots and lots of gifts. We are also going to be recording our 50th podcast next week. And we have had just under 200,000 views. So we're very, very excited about that. If you haven't already done so, please subscribe to our YouTube channel. Dr. Anton Marburg, good morning. We seem to be in a very, very good space at the moment in South Africa, aren't we? Good morning. We, we definitely are with regards to the, the vaccine and the virus, but talking about everything else in South Africa, but that's a whole different discussion for a whole different time. Mm. Uh, we're currently sitting on 117,089,586 cases worldwide, with 2.6 million deaths and 92 million cases resolved. The United States is sitting on 29.6 million cases with 537,000 deaths. And South Africa have 1 million 520,206 cases with 50,647 deaths and 1,227 new cases in the last 24 hours and 101,573 people who have been vaccinated. Now, that's quite dismal. 101,573 of 1 to 1.2 million healthcare workers. We'll get to that just now, but I mean, that is completely dismal and... uh, completely uh, unacceptable. We've got a recovery rate of 94.7%, and we are now one year after having found or diagnosed the first COVID case in South Africa on the 5th of March. There are currently 2,469 cases in hospital in Gauteng, with 427 in ICU, and 256 currently ventilated. Right, what are you seeing in the hospital? What's your figure at the moment? The hospital is very quiet at the moment. We've got about four or five patients in one ward in the hospital. Mm-hmm. Um, obviously, those patients are very sick. Um, they are critically ill and they're there because they have to be there. But the numbers have gone down dramatically. And generally, life in the hospital is, in inverted commas, almost back to a sense of normality. Operations are being done. Elective surgeries are being done. Um People are being seen in the rooms. People are coming back to hospitals. So there's a different sense around the hospital at the moment with the numbers being much lower. Do you have any sense of when the third wave will be? And is it possible at all to avoid the third wave? It's very possible to avoid the third wave if we go, uh, if people actually become serious and become much more strict. The problem is now that when the numbers come down, people start relaxing and people start doing things that they wouldn't have done before. And it's just basically impossible to prevent a third wave unless we manage to vaccinate the whole of the population before the end of April. We, we guesstimating, and I say guesstimating, that the third wave will probably be towards the end of April, beginning of May, after the Easter holidays, after the Passover holidays. There'll be lots of communal gatherings. There'll be lots of spiritual gatherings. All of those things play a part in the surges and in the super spreading events that lead to the third wave, unfortunately. Right. So a a few people have asked already about Passover. I think let's leave that 
for a few weeks. The, the only question that is probably relevant to ask them to answer at this point is when you're organizing it, what should you, you know, can you go back to normal having 30 or 40 people for dinner or should you keep it small? We'll get into the details of how to actually function over this period at, at a later stage. Yeah, I think that is very important. I think we do have to get into the nitty gritty of what to do and, and how to do it. But I think we've got to get into the new reality that smaller is better. There's no such thing as having 30 to 40 people at your, your meals. If you're going to have people, it should be one maximum or maximum two families that are widespread, that are social distance, that you're following the rules that we've been discussing for the last few months of how to deal uh, the food out and how to make sure everyone wears a mask in between courses. So the smaller, the better, the smaller, the more safer, and the smaller, the more responsible you can be. Okay, cool. So uh, that's just a general. Now let's just talk about the vaccines. Just over 100,000 healthcare workers have been vaccinated. As you, the words you've used, dismal. Yeah, I mean, look, this is still what the government are calling a trial that they are conducting. So they've received 160,000 vaccinations, of which only 100,000 have been administered. Now, the population in South Africa is in the millions. So if we can't vaccinate 1.2 million healthcare workers within a few weeks, how are we going to vaccinate the whole of South Africa? In order to get an effective herd immunity, we need to be vaccinating about 4 million people a day to have an effective herd immunity towards the end of the year. I just don't understand no, why. No, sorry, not, not 4, 4 million a Four million, Four million a people a month, a month, yeah. Yeah, yeah. In order, to, in order to actually get heard, look, if we could do four million, that would be great. Mm. But um, mm. we, we can't even do 100,000 in three weeks. So I'm not sure how exactly. Do we even have more vaccines? To... So you know, the, those... the question is, what's happened to the AstraZeneca vaccine? Has it been sent back? Is it sitting in storage? Has it been given to up Africa? And, and I personally can't understand why they don't take that AstraZeneca vaccine and give it to healthy 18-year-olds to 30-year-olds to use. Those are healthy people. It's not a waste. It will give them some sort of immunity and some sort of boost. And then it's not wasted. And then we can start vaccinating more people that way. So the questions are just unanswerable and I can't understand it. Have you heard from the private medical aides at all about this? We have had no feedback at all from any of the private medical aides regarding whether or not they'll be vaccinating their, their clientele, whether their doctors, their healthcare workers, anybody. There's just been no feedback at all. They've been missing an action. As they say, as they say, the silence is deafening. Mm. From is that from all the medical aides? You know, you obviously working as, as a physician in private practice, you must be working with with all various medical aides across the board. Have any of them communicated with you? None of them have communicated with us. And, and I did read an article the other day that's saying that the private institutions, the private medicaids are allowed to supply vaccines to their members. Mm. Where are we going with this? We don't know. We haven't heard anything. Uh, maybe there's some amazing genie that's going to jump out of a box soon. Well, we keep saying there must be a lot going on behind the scenes. There must be a lot going on the, behind the scenes. But I'm getting a, a little um, exhausted from saying despondent. That. Yeah. yeah, surely, surely when one is paying the numbers for private medical care, for private medical aid that, that members are paying, surely there should be some responsibility on the medical aids to at least communicate. And as, uh, that's as, a, as a member of a fund, what about you as, 
a supplier, surely you would want to know what is happening with your patients, what is happening with your family, because they're not medical workers, so they aren't entitled to the to the vaccine. Surely this is, um, you know, it, it, it seems to me that the medical aids, uh, with all their best intentions and all the the the, the I would imagine their their intent to do good seem to just be missing in action. Once again, unfortunately, it's, it's a moot point. We haven't heard anything. We'd love to hear something. You know, there's lots of rumors going around. People saying that if the medical aides will provide one vaccine for private, they'll provide two vaccines for public. But these are all rumors. This none of this has been substantiated. Uh, we haven't heard anything from medical aides, so we wait with bated breath. Do you think maybe there's some something going on behind the scenes with regard to NHI, the the medical aids being bullied into silence and just uh, being forced to wait while the government plays this out? It's very feasible. I think there could be a very feasible reason or option. But as I say, we we kind of you know hypothesizing and theoreticizing here without having any information from. The well, that's case. always the problem. Is when you don't have information, we make up we make up information to fill right. in the gap. And, and that is unfortunately just human nature. All right, well, we'll have to see how that goes. Medical aid still missing in action. Only 100,000, just over 100,000 South Africans vaccinated. A, an absolutely shameful number in my view. Right, let's just talk about where we are at in terms of other treatments. We're still getting um, questions about ivermectin. Can we just deal with that before we uh, continue into other questions? So a study came out this week in JAMA, that's a Journal of American uh, Medicine. Um, there was a five-day course of ivermectin was compared with a placebo course, and it did not improve time to resolution of symptoms. Uh, there was no support of ivermectin in mild COVID cases. So it's another strike for the ivermectin fighters. And once again, even anecdotally, in our severe cases who have all been treated um, from the outside with ivermectin, we are seeing no benefit to the use of ivermectin. Okay, so uh, nothing, nothing very positive there. It's, it's interesting. Lauren asks a, a fascinating question. We also saw a a counterfeit ring with regard to vaccinations and vaccines being discovered in on the East Rand. Surprise, surprise, or wherever that was. Um, how do we know? She wants to know that the vaccine we're getting is actually legit. So. At this point in time, we know it's legit because it's part of a trial. Once again, there's a whole thing called the Sasanki trial, where there's up to 300,000 vaccinations that have been donated to the country to work on this trial. And even though it hasn't been registered with SAPRA, it's a trial and it's, it's being registered all over the world with the FDA and the CDC and all other big corporations and companies. So we know for now that it's, it's definitely the legit thing. If I go by just for the fact of the the symptoms and the myalgia and the fever that I had after my vaccine, I'm going to tell you right now, and what I got was legit because there's no doubt that a placebo wouldn't have caused those side effects. Mm -hmm. and, and at this stage, we are still most comfortable with the Johnson & Johnson because it's one, it's one shot and it's shown itself to be effective for the South African variant. That's correct. We, we, we know that it's one shot and you can keep it in a normal refrigerated, normal fridge, unlike the, the MRA vaccines, which have to be stored at much cooler temperatures. Remember that the, the Johnson & Johnson is not like the mRNA. It's a viral vector vaccine. So it's a single dose. 
the cells produce a viral protein that the immune system recognizes. And, and I think it's important just to do a quick immunology recap so we understand how it works and, and what mm -hmm. happens there. But when the SARS-CoV-2 virus enters the body, your body, and then an infection occurs, your body has an immune response. And the most important cells are your white blood cells. And they, they produce things called macrophages. These ingest the germ or they ingest the virus and they, they leave with an antigen. You get B lymphocytes and these produce antibodies to fight off. These are part of your defense. And you get T lymphocytes, which are also defensive cells, which also help attack cells that have been infected. So this vector vaccine that we're talking about is a weakened live attenuated virus. So it's a weakened live virus, different to the mRNA virus, but it doesn't actually promote the SARS-CoV-2 virus. It works on the adenovirus and it takes the protein from that, which produces a protein which stimulates an immune response in your body, similar to that you would get with COVID-19. And that's how your body fights it off and it makes the T lymphocytes and the B lymphocytes and it helps fight off the defensive mechanism in order to break down the cells in the body. So following that question, Laura says, how my sister asked me to ask, is it true that she can't take the Johnson vaccine if she's got has Crohn's disease? Um, it's, uh, it's, and is on the bio, biological infusion called Revelex every few months. Uh, she was told that uh, because the Johnson & Johnson is a live vaccine, it's not necessarily good for her. So it is a live weakened vaccine. We know that. And Remember, it can't copy itself and give you the cells that create the COVID-19. That being said, for that respect, the Moderna and Pfizer are mRNA and they're not live vaccines, so they are deemed to be much safer. But I think you've got to discuss this with your rheumatologist. At this point, I would see no issue having that if that was offered to you. Remember that the people who have got rheumatoid arthritis are on what we call disease-modifying anti-rheumatic drugs like Revalex, like methotrexate, like all these corticosteroids, are markedly immune-suppressed so that if they do get uh -huh. severe COVID, they do get extremely ill. And you've uh -huh. got to balance the pros and the cons of having the vaccine or not having the vaccine. So I think you've got to take your case. You've got to discuss with the rheumatologist and say, are you at high risk? Is it better for you to have this vaccine or is it better for you to wait a few months for another vaccine? Right now, if it was me, I would say I would take it. Right. Um, Anissa wants to know, can you please explain the physiology of, of losing taste and smell? So basically the way it works is we've got what we call olfactory nerves, which are part of your cranial nerves, which is a group of nerves that express for smell and, and work in your body to help actually modulate the smell and the taste in your body. Now, this ACE2 receptor protein actually don't express genes on your olfactory nerves, but they actually express your genes on supporting and structural metabolic cells around those nerves. So therefore the coronavirus or the, the SARS-CoV-2 virus causes a change in loss of smell and loss of taste because it affects the structural and metabolic cells around your olfactory nerves. And that's why we're seeing that when people get better from the SARS-CoV-2, they actually start getting their sense of smell, and their sense of taste back. But we can't predict how long it's going to last because it's affecting the metabolic and structural cells around that area. And so we can't deem whether it's going to take six months, whether it's going to take a year. The majority of people do get better and do get their sense of smell and their taste back. Is that considered part of long COVID? It is considered part of one of the things of long COVID, yes. Right. 
Right. And a few questions about, uh, is a person infectious at all during long COVID? The answer to that is no. We know that the virus replicates within a period of four to seven days, and we're giving the quarantine isolation to 10 to 14 days. When you're over that period, the virus is not replicating. You might still have virus particles, but you're dealing with, with the sequelae, which is the consequences of the disease. That's what the long COVID is. It doesn't mean you actually are infectious. You're not passing the virus onto other people, but you're dealing with the remnants of the virus that has been shed in the virus particles that are causing you to have these headaches, that are causing this fatigue, that are causing the respiratory issues, the neurocognitive issues, even the stress and the trauma related, it's all due to the long COVID, which is completely non-infectious. Right. What is our R, our R number at the moment, Andy B? So the R number is, is less than, than one, and that's very important because that tells you that the case numbers are going down. That tells you that the spread is much less, and that's why we've effectively also been moved into level one lockdown because of the fact that the spread of the virus isn't as dramatic as it was mm. prior, when, which is great to one, when you could spread it to more than two, three people at a time. Right. Keith wants to know, is there a difference in immunity from the original virus to the new variant? So I don't know if the, the question is if there's a difference in the immunity, but what we've seen anecdotally in the hospital is that the people who were affected in the second wave were much sicker, were much more severe. The people who were in ICU did far worse. So we don't know if you're going to get more T cells or more B cells or more lymphocytes regarding having had the first variant or the first wave or the second wave. I think time will tell, but I don't think it really makes much of a difference because at the end of the day, you need a good immune response to fight off the virus. And the best way to get that is to have a vaccine so you can get proper immunological response and proper T cells, B cells and memory cells in order to fight off the virus. But just going back to that, because there are a number of questions around this in various forms, you have absolutely no idea when vaccinations are going to be available to non-medical personnel. Is that right? Look, the, the, the point is that, as I said, we're sitting on 160,000 vaccines that have been received through Sasanke. We have no idea when the remainder of the 900,000 to 1 million vaccines for the rest of the healthcare workers are arriving. And I think once those are done, only then are the other vaccines going to arrive. I mean, the government did say they've procured a few million more Johnson & Johnson vaccines, but that remains to be seen when those are going to arrive. We don't yeah, get any they, feedback they, from the government. Yeah, we don't get any feedback from anybody. They throw those numbers at us all the time. We've secured this, we've secured that. Well, give us a date. When are they, when are they arriving? It's, it's, it's actually not that it shouldn't be that they, They're calling things in quarters, at the end of the quarter, and in the second quarter, and in the third quarter, but there's no definitive dates. Mm, mm. The, uh, right, so, so a number of questions around, uh, around the vaccines. Um, the other thing that people are asking is, what are the chances of contracting the new variant if you've had COVID from the, in the first wave? So you can still contract the, the new variant if you've had COVID in the first wave. There was a study that showed that over 4,000 people have been reinfected with the new variant. So that's, that's quite a high number. So just because you've had primary COVID the first time doesn't mean you can't get it the second time. Once again, if you got COVID, let's say in April, May last year, we now are nine months later, 
we don't believe that your immunity is extremely strong and virulent enough to say that you're going to be protected against this. And once again, the first strain, there was a different variant. So it works completely differently with regards to your immunity process and how you are protected from these different spike proteins and these different mutations. We know that it's the B1351 in South Africa with the E484K mutation, and that's very different to what we had in the first wave. So just go by the rule that you are not protected if you've had COVID in the first wave, um, if, because you can still get it now, and there's potentially, as we say, a third wave that will come around. Right. Adel wants to know, um, are we hearing about people who are, have had quite serious reactions and man down for the day or two after the Johnson & Johnson? Are they contagious during that time? So we don't believe that they're contagious. We believe it's an immune response that the body is mounting towards getting the vaccine. And some people have a virulent immune response. Some people get a, a dramatic reaction and some people have minimal side effects. So it's a side effect from mm -hmm. having the vaccine. Remember, it's, it's a, although it's a lab, it's a weakened virus and it doesn't mean you're not getting infected with COVID-19, therefore you're not contagious. But importantly enough, the most important thing to say, it doesn't mean that once you've been vaccinated, you cannot pick up COVID-19 or you cannot get infected by SARS-CoV-2 in that one month period thereafter. You've got to be extremely careful because you don't know if you've got antibodies yet to the vaccine. All right. Stacey is asking a question about copper fresh masks. Can we just go over masks? Which are the, which are the ones that are acceptable? Which are not acceptable? What people should be doing? So we, we can break them into different categories. If we're looking at healthcare workers and people working in ICU and people working frontline, then obviously the most important is the N95 and the K95 masks. For other people in hospitals, it's the surgical masks. Surgical masks are extremely affected. Otherwise, triple layer cloth masks are what is necessary. There's been a lot of studies being done about copper masks, which are sounding very promising that these copper masks can fight off the actual COVID-19. They fight off other bacteria like E. coli and other types of bacteria that they say that can actually come onto the mask, but does not go through the mask and doesn't spread. The mask got a copper membrane that actually breaks down the bacteria or breaks down the virus. So there's lots of studies out about that. They do look promising. Um, it's not for a in-hospital use. It's more for a out-of-hospital use and there is big potential there for that to be used in, in the future. And I think it can be very promising with that. Philippa wants to know, because we're now at level one, what, what does this really mean? Are we just heading into a false reality that everyone is now, uh, people are now having functions, leading normal lives, etc.? Yeah, so I actually think that's a very good question. And I read an article, there's something called the Peltzman effect, where a comparison is made of someone who's had a vaccine they say if someone drives a car faster after getting new brakes, because they know that the good brakes will decrease the chance of them having a crash. Oh. And they say that there's four things that influence whether risky behavior will increase once the situation appears to be better. And those are that there's a, a new measure making the situation safer. So that would be the person getting the jab or the person posting it on social media, they've got the jab and that makes it appear to be safer. People are motivated um, to engage in risky or previously risky behavior after you have lockdown, which is completely understandable. People must have to be able to control the ability to increase their risky behavior. And lastly, the new safety measure has to be effective enough 
that people are comfortable doing what they used to perceive as risky. So that's how the human mind works. That's how human nature works. And because people are thinking now they're going to the vaccine, it's going to change the behavior of people, not always for the good, unfortunately. Um, and so being in level one is kind of a get out of jail free for a while until mm, we get back mm. onto that monopoly board and pick up the go back to jail card again. So unless we keep on passing, going, collecting 200 without getting in jail, then we, okay. we're going to be landing back right. in trouble. I know some many mixed metaphors there. It's not easy for me, but 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 I understand really very much what you're saying. If the vaccine is only about 60% effective and one needs about 65% of the population to be immunized to, to achieve herd immunity, does this mean that 100% of the population needs to be vaccinated before that can be achieved? That's Marcel's question. So no, I think what, what we've got to understand, and we'll go back to even something like the flu vaccine. The flu vaccine is 40 to 60% effective. Okay, when we talk about the efficacy of the vaccine, we're talking about in mild to moderate cases. We know that the vaccine is said to be 95 to 100% effective in preventing hospitalization and preventing death. So those are your primary endpoints. Those are the most important thing. We know that if you get the vaccine, you can still get sick, but to a lesser degree. And therefore, you don't have to increase the number of the herd immunity. You still need the herd immunity between 60 to 70 or closer to 70% for you to have effective immunity in the community. Sharon wants to know, what's your opinion on kids' lift schemes? Is it safe to have three or four kids from different families in a car? You know, if you've got a big family car and you can open the windows and you can separate all the children with spacing and make sure they wear the mask and keep the windows open, you can do something like that. But if the kids are sitting on top of each other, right next to each other, they can be pulling off their masks, they're going to be sharing drinks. And if the, the journey is more than five minutes and you're looking for trouble. Jody says uh, comorbidity and age, etc. aside, do we yet know why people die from the virus or get seriously ill while some are asymptomatic or get this or are affected very mildly? So that is a very good question, which I think can, we'll have an answer for you in about three or four years, hopefully. We still don't hold know. Hold on, Jody. coming back to you. you know, just right. hold your breath. We still don't know why people in the same household where the one spouse can get severely ill, land up in hospital on a ventilator, and the other spouse who's spent all that time with them is unaffected, is asymptomatic. We don't know what the genetics behind is and the viral predisposition is to why one person gets sicker than the other. We do, however, know that with comorbidities and certain comorbidities, you do get sicker when you have got the virus. But we can't guesstimate or we don't know essentially why someone gets sicker than another person. Right. But really where we are is in of itself good news because our numbers are so low. Is that your good news for today? Yeah, I think so. I think that we need to realize that the recovery rate is high at the moment. Life is taking on a new sense of back to normality. Okay, People are keen and wanting to be vaccinated. So we are in a good space and people are outside and people are enjoying the weather and people are doing what needs to be done. But we've just got to remember that we've got to actually maintain the rules. Despite being in level one, if we look at certain studies from the CDC, when the states in, in America have decreased or lifted the restrictions on uh, dining on uh, premises uh, indoors at restaurants, the rates of daily COVID-19 have gone up 40 to 100 days thereafter, and the rates of death have gone up up to 60 days thereafter. 
So we've got to be careful. We've got to wear our masks. We've got to have mitigating factors. Um, obviously, it, there is lots of good news because people are, are getting back to normal in, in many ways. And of course, I'd be remiss if I didn't mention the best soccer team in the world, Liverpool. Um, you'll never walk alone. It doesn't matter what team you support. There's no better team than the Reds, the real Reds being Liverpool. And, and the good news is there that the Liverpool legend, Steven Gerrard, is about to wrap up his first Scottish Premiership title league win, as well as the fact that his team is in the last round of 16 for the Europa League. So kudos to him and to Liverpool, uh, one of our greatest fathers of Liverpool. And to quote, life can only be understood backwards, but it must be lived forwards. Don't forget to wear your masks. Don't forget to wash your hands. Don't forget social distancing. Don't forget we're still in the panic, even though we're in level one lock pandemic, never mind panic. We're in level one lockdown. But just be safe, just be cautious, and just look after each other. I'm Howard Feldman. This has been the Sunday Synthesis of Podcast with me, Howard Feldman, and Dr. Anton Marburg. Don't forget to subscribe to our YouTube channel, and we'll be joining you next week, Sunday, for our 50th. Uh, edition of the uh, 50th recording and our one year anniversary. In the meantime, be safe, have a great week, be kind to yourselves and be kind to everybody else. God bless.